Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast, Jericho Road, where here in Episode 3, we are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And in the last couple of episodes, we've seen where Jesus simply drops from the sky in this tiny, quiet place called Galilee and and proclaims that the day of the Lord is here, which simply means that heaven, or something that he calls the kingdom of God, is not something you have to die to wait for or to wait for at the end of time, but rather under our noses, right under our noses, in the very stuff of our everyday lives, and just waiting to be picked up off the ground if we could see it. And in our last episode, we saw on a Sabbath morning and in the synagogue, they all learn what this means when Jesus cast out a demon with just a word, which means that Jesus has the authority uh, to not only proclaim this kingdom, but to enact this kingdom. And all this is really a good backdrop to these healing stories that we're about to start reading in the Gospel of Mark, because I want you to hear me say this before I say anything else with regards to healing. Jesus never performed tricks to prove his existence. That's a pretty important pastoral consideration because people will lose their faith when prayers aren't answered or, or not answered right away, or they seem to, and a silence might seem to prove that there is no God. But yet we don't have to live for very long to understand that a faith journey is just that, that God is not a vending machine, that sometimes prayers are not answered the way we want them to be. And here we also find another answer in Jesus' first healing. So that's what we're going to look at today is an answer to the question, uh, why healing and what does healing do? And remarkably, this first healing of Jesus in Mark's gospel is a really little one. I'll read it to you. It's Mark chapter 1, beginning with the 29th verse. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, one thing I've noticed when you read this passage is that they are observing the rules of the Sabbath. As soon as they left the synagogue, we're told in verse 29, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew and Peter and James and John, which means that it was still the Sabbath day. It's only after sundown when the crowds bring the other people to them. But it's here on this continual Sabbath, this Sabbath day where Jesus not only preached in the synagogue, but healed a man from a demon in his mind. He now heals a woman of a fever. Well, to get us to the meaning of the story, I want to take us really away from Capernaum for a minute and over to Nazareth, which is the hometown of Jesus. Nazareth is about 30 miles away. It's a crowded little Arab town that you can find today with terrible traffic. And it's really hard to see where Jesus actually lived. You see, in a place like Nazareth, the first century street level is some 20 feet below the road. But the skyline is still dominated by something called the Basilica of the Annunciation. It's a modern church, and it's built over a first century house. 
They claim it as the traditional site of the angel's visit to the Virgin Mary, and it's truly magnificent. There are paintings of the Virgin Mary from around the world, and it's multi-story, and it centers over this first-century street-level house that's claimed to be the house where the angel Gabriel announced the news to the Virgin Mary that she would have the child Jesus. Now, there's no way to really be sure, but it is beautiful. And in a little town like Nazareth, with only 500 people, any first-century structure is likely to be touched by Jesus or seen by Jesus. Still, there's something really exciting right up the hill and away from the crowds, away from the tourists, away from the pilgrims, away from the waiting lines. Deep below, a little church called the Church of St. Joseph, which is right up the hill from the Annunciation, and it's a pretty little church. Down in the basement, there is a ritual bath called a mikvah. Ever since an archaeologist and politician and soldier named Egal Yadin first identified a ritual bath as a mikvah in 1963, some 850 of these have been found throughout Judea and Galilee. And Nazareth, being a poor town, only 500 members, little bitty place, there would only be one mikvah. Only one ritual bath, only one bath for purification so that one could worship, which means that Jesus was here. Jesus bathed here. Jesus worshiped here. And it's curious to note that nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus criticized by anyone for using or not using a mikvah. Pay close attention in the stories and you seem to see bathing or washing everywhere. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at a place called Bethesda, which is surely a mikvah or a ritual bath, and he seems to be there to wash himself. Jesus heals people, and he tells them to present themselves or to purify themselves at the temple or before their priest, which may be an important clue to understanding this little bit of healing in the house in Mark chapter 1. Mikvah were intended to bring people or to prepare people or to restore people to union with God and with each other. Jesus used healing in this way. In a sermon to God's people in the book of Deuteronomy, which they all knew, they knew stories in the backs of the Bible much better than we do today, and they knew that Moses preached a sermon in Deuteronomy that warned the God's people that if they would stray from God's law, bad things would not only happen, but bad things would also keep them from protection and from union with God and each other. Fever would be one of these signs. So, by saying that on a Sabbath day that Jesus would heal an old woman of a fever, Jesus is restoring this woman or returning this woman back to the place where she could love and she could serve. Now, I like to joke around St. Luke's and say that it was just like a man to heal a woman and she has to get up and fix some supper. But in their culture, serving was her highest joy. And the same word is used in Mark chapter 1, 13, when the angels serve Jesus as well in the wilderness during his temptation. I have an old newspaper clipping that I've misplaced since I've moved a few years ago, but I hope that I find again. It's from a barbecue restaurant here in Birmingham. And this lovely woman who is the one of the pit chefs there, the barbecue restaurant, she's standing there holding a plate of barbecue ribs, pork ribs, Uh, with collard greens and mac and cheese and all the wonderful food uh, that we enjoy here in the South. And the caption says, I always cook as though I'm cooking for Jesus. 
which is wonderful and ironic because Jesus probably couldn't eat any of that according to the dietary uh, restrictions of the day. Uh, But here's a good first lesson. When we serve in this way, we pray in this way. When we serve in this way, when we find joy in this way, when we pray with our hands, when we, when we cook for Jesus, if you will, we find that we are in union. We're whole deep down inside. We're in union with God and with our neighbor. And that seems to be a good first lesson when it comes to this healing. There are no small miracles because it's God's will that all barriers should be removed. Just think about the ordinary miracles in your life like being at the right place at the right time or a good dream or just being lined up inside. Well, that's one lesson. Another good takeaway from just these few verses uh, in the house there of Simon Peter, another good takeaway involves location. You see, this is not only the house of Simon Peter, but it's also the only house identified in the Gospel of Mark. As we look at the world of Jesus as the way Mark tells it, the house of Simon Peter is identified. Every other time, we're simply referring to the house or the home. Remembering that Jesus is an itinerant preacher, it's his only house. So in chapter 2, Jesus heals a man in the house. Uh, we, we, we know from the archaeology of this house that it had a stick and mud flat roof. And so this is most likely, if not almost certain, the house that the man was lowered through on a pallet for healing. You might be interested to know that we found this house. In in the city of the city, the town of Capernaum today, the archaeology there, there's one special house with an octagonal church built around it. I like to say when you go to the Holy Land, if you can find a late Roman church on something, then you've probably found an important Bible site. Late Roman means perhaps late 4th century or early 5th century, uh, something within within oral memory of a place. And actually, this particular house with the little octagonal church constructed around it also has evidence of Christian pilgrimage even before that, perhaps even from the late 1st century, where, where Christian pilgrims would scratch a prayer or their name on the wall, which leads us to believe that we have found the house. And that's pretty cool to me because it's not only the house of the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, but it's also the house of a whole lot of Bible stuff, like the man lowered through the roof. But my favorite of these, my favorite of these happens in Mark chapter 9. Now, Mark chapter 9, beginning with the 33rd verse, I should say, happens like this. Uh, They are going into the house, and Jesus hears them talking along the way, and he asks them a question. I think I'll just read it to you. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, there we go, the house again, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, who was the greatest. So we sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus and his friends are in the house, right? And Jesus takes a child in his arms and he says, if you want to see the world the way that I see the world, if you want to find the kingdom that has come now, if you want to see that the time is fulfilled, if you want to see heaven right under your noses, you've got to put down your resume. You've got to put down your control. You've got to put down your angling for 
for position. You've got to put down all these things that grown-ups will do, and you've got to see the world as a child will see. Well, what's cool about it is if this is the house, and I believe that it is, Simon Peter's house, the house that begins in Mark chapter 1 and continues through Mark chapter 9, then the child is Simon Peter's kid. We know that Peter would go on to do great things. Peter would become, in time, the rock upon which Christ would build his church. Peter would have to learn. Peter would have to experience pain. But I like to imagine that even in his old age, Peter would look back and remember the day that Jesus picked up his child and put him in his lap and said, if you want to see my kingdom, you've got to see the world this way. Small miracles in a small house. And a big lesson. You know, these days at St. Luke's, I've been teaching our congregation, the the difference between means and ends, and the danger of confusing the two, means and ends. A good example that I like to use actually comes from one of my favorite fast food restaurants, which is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is pretty awesome. First of all, the food's great, and I love waffle fries. But one cool thing they do at Chick-fil-A, if you pay close attention, that even if you're traveling through a busy uh, drive-through line, or you're at the window, or you're talking to the guy with a reflective vest, or you're going in to pick up your order and you say, thank you, they always say, my pleasure. Just try it. You say, thank you, they always say, my pleasure. And the cool thing about it is it's not written down in an employee manual. It's just been caught on as part of the corporate culture to say, my pleasure. And legend has it that the founder, Truett Cathy, was actually staying in a luxury hotel somewhere, and he said, thank you. And the person responded, my pleasure, and it gave him such a warm feeling that he began to understand the difference between means and ends. What he discovered is that waffle fries are a means, but not an end in themselves. Rather, the delicious food is a means to an experience. By saying my pleasure, they'd reach the end. The end is the dignity of the customer. The end is a pleasurable experience. The end is a feeling of joy and community. The end is is more of a, more of a feeling, right? A feeling of being happy when had been through Chick Fil A and had a good time, as opposed to simply having a delicious chicken sandwich. So here we're learning that healing is a means to God's end for us, which is a whole integrated life. And there are other means as well. Means like, well, life lessons are means. Wisdom is a means. Prayer is a means. Even our religion becomes a means to this goal of love. They're not ends in themselves. If we find ourselves fighting over doctrine or fighting over interpretation or fighting over the way our church ought to run or fighting over the songs that we're supposed to sing or fighting over the politics that will continue to divide and write and distract us, then we're forgetting the, the means are the, the means are not the ends in themselves. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, the end is love, and God is reaching out to us. These others are means to get there. And I'm beginning to think that pretty much all the Bible stories we read are the same. God's reaching out to us, but will we take it? I'll end this lesson with a question someone asked me after church one day. People ask ministers crazy questions, and sometimes we're ready for them, sometimes we're not. I guess I was ready this morning. Someone came up to me after church and asked, Rich, if if someone handed Jesus a guitar, could he play it? That's the question. If someone handed Jesus a guitar, uh, could he play it? And I thought about it, and I thought, well, on one level, of course. I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, Jesus is 
the Lord of heaven and earth, and Jesus made everything, including guitars. And, and so if you hand Jesus a guitar, even without lessons, Jimmy could play, uh, Jesus could play anything you wanted. I said, Jimmy, I think I was thinking of Jimmy Page. No, Jesus could play, Jesus could play anything he wanted to. But with this lesson in mind, and I think I had this lesson in mind or something like it the day that I answered the question, I want to flip the question back. Sure, I believe that Jesus could play a guitar if he handed it to him. But knowing Jesus like we do from the Gospel of Mark, I believe with all my heart, Jesus would hand the guitar back and say, Sure, I can play it, but I'd rather you play it for me. Love is the end. Union with God, union with each other. Thanks, everybody. Hey, let's keep this lesson going with more healings from Jesus.